Welcome to Drop Everything, podcast number 24. I'm your host, Dan Holzman, and on this podcast, I have the pleasure of talking with vaudeville sensation, Tom Wall. Lots of great stories, lots of great tips, but before we get to that, let's thank our sponsors. Starting with our main sponsor, who is the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. Also, find information about this year's festival, which will take place in El Paso, Texas, July 25th through the 31st. I'll be there. I'm emceeing the welcome show. So please come up and tell me if you're enjoying the Drop Everything podcast. The other sponsor is me and my personal coaching website at braindrizzles.com. I do comedy coaching, comedy mentoring, career advice, and so much more. And you can get a free consultation. That's right, a free consultation by going to braindrizzles.com. All right, let's get on to the podcast and talk with vaudeville sensation Tom Wall. Welcome to the Drop Everything podcast. Very excited to have an up-and-coming juggler, very talented man. Welcome to the Drop Everything podcast, Mr. Tom Wall. How's it going, Tom? It's going great, Dan. How are you? Fine, thanks. Now, you're a juggler who, in my estimation, kind of just appeared on the scene almost fully developed. Like when I saw you, I thought, where has this guy been? Because he's already kind of a seasoned professional from my first experience of you. What kind of training did you have and and, uh, what's your background? How old were you when you learned to juggle? Stuff like that. I learned to juggle just like three balls from a foreign exchange student, a guy from Trinidad and Tobago when my family lived in New Orleans back when I was in fourth grade, and I was, I guess, 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. You get sort of like five sloppy catches, and you say, check, juggling, I've mastered it, A+, plus, I'm done. Sure. A couple of years later, this was, this was still when, when we lived in New Orleans, I checked a copy of Dave Finnegan's book out of the library. I just searched juggling on a whim, and I got a copy of The Complete Juggler. That was my textbook for a little while. My family moved to LA. We moved there. I was there for a couple of years and I I learned how to juggle three clubs there. And then eventually when my family moved to St. Louis, uh, St. Louis, Missouri, when I was 16, I was a sophomore in high school. um, That's when I met my first juggler, my first other juggler. And I started to to learn from other people and and I guess learn a lot more. (laughs) And did you have any uh, drama background or theater background? Your approach seems very theatrical. No theater at all. You know, I, I come from a pretty, pretty serious family, a pretty academic family. Uh, yeah, my dad, my dad's, uh, he's a surgeon, and uh, he also teaches anthropology, undergraduate anthropology at Washington University in St. Louis now. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely the only person in the family, maybe with the exception of my mother, who's uh, she's a seamstress um, that does anything in the arts. But education is important to you as well. You've told me you have a master's. So where does education come into play, and when did you decide to sort of make juggling your profession? Uh, I mean, I kind of, I mean, okay, so I, I kind of fell into it, in all honesty. So uh, I, I did my undergraduate education at Washington University in St. Louis. I kind of fell into there, too. I was offered a full ride, so that's where I decided to go to school. And I was always interested in languages when I was young. In, in high school, I studied Spanish and German. And when I went to WashU, I was sort of planning this uh, special major. They, they, at least they purport, <laughs> they, they say that you're allowed to construct your own major and do these multidisciplinary things. So I was working on a, a degree uh, in applied linguistics. So I was studying Spanish, German, Portuguese, modern standard Arabic, and ESL, you know, learning English as a second language, because I was interested in, in grammar and sort of like the, the fundamentals of what like the meaning of meaning, you know, how, how ideas are conveyed. And long story short, that sort of fell through. I ended up with a degree in German lang- uh, Germanic languages and literatures. And uh, when I graduated, I found it very hard to find any kind of, I mean, no, no, nobody ever called me back for an interview when I applied for jobs. What kind of jobs? Interpreter or teacher? What kind of jobs were you looking for? I wasn't really sure. I was looking for something that would pay the bills. <laughs> okay. I applied for jobs. I couldn't get any kind of work in the short or medium term. And I had these juggling skills that I'd been cultivating running the St. Louis Juggling Club, the juggling club at Wash U. And so I started getting work as a juggler, doing like little variety shows or burlesque shows. I was living in in Boulder, Colorado at the time uh, with my friend Warren. I'm sure you've talked to Warren Hammond at some point in your life. (laughs) Of course, I know Warren from Smirk, the juggling team Smirk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, eventually I did a, a gig for this circus sideshow company called the Hells of Pop and Sideshow Review, the greatest show in hell. 
and they invited me to go on a tour with them. And so I toured with them for a few months. Um, and that was when I first got my, was my first taste of really performing with any kind of regularity, you know, the same company of people, the same style of shows. So that's the first time that I ever really started performing. And later on, going back to the academic side of things, I eventually went to the New England Center for Circus Arts. The, mm -hmm. uh, they call themselves NECA in Brattleboro, Vermont, where I live right now. In their professional development program, the circus school, where they, they, they have a professional program for people that are interested in living in a small town and focusing on their work as an artist. And at that same time, that was when I was still on the board of directors of the IJA. Working with the IJA, that's, that's what started getting me more interested in uh, nonprofit organizations and, I guess, nonprofit administration. And so when I started going to NECA, I also enrolled at Drexel University um, for a master's of science degree in their, uh, their nonprofit management department. That's very impressive, Tom, I mean, that you've continued your education even after starting your professional career as a juggler. And I think that's very admirable. Cool. <laughs> so not, not a question so much just as a attaboy Tom, because that's something I look at right now that do you go back to school? Do you try to sort of have a, a sideline with your juggling? And the fact that you never really had this from the start, it wasn't like, I'm going to be a professional juggler. Like you say, you sort of fell into it. And after this first experience and you got this taste of performing on a regular basis, right. were you then like hooked at that point? Uh, I mean, yes and no. I, uh, I guess my path to where I am right now has been kind of long and meandering with a bunch of false starts and, and different ideas of what I would do. So after I worked with a sideshow for, for, I guess, the summer season, and I ended up going back to St. Louis after that, doing burlesque shows and doing this and that, and you know, applying for uh, for longer term work, like applying to like Bush Gardens and, and trying to get work at theme parks or some other avenue to really start performing a lot. And I applied to the, uh, the circus school in Quebec City, but I got rejected one year, and then I applied the following year, and I got rejected again. And I was starting to really question my decision to pursue juggling or to circus as a career, see if it was actually something to be manageable or solvent or, or possible to achieve any kind of success with. And it was at that point that I, I also applied for the Philadelphia Teaching Fellowship because my, my other life, my academic life, was all about applied linguistics, about teaching English as a second language. I guess when I was in Colorado, too, I, uh, I got a CELTA degree, which is a, it's a, it's a degree that Cambridge University in England offers for teaching English, to, English as a second language to adults. Right. So I had that credential as well. So I applied for the Philadelphia Teaching Fellowship in their ESL department. And I was awarded a fellowship along with a master's degree program to teach ESL to, uh, to refugees in, in Philadelphia. And that was going to be my, my route for a long time. But there was, a, <laughs> there was this really awful phone call that I got from those people about uh, I think it was two or three days before the program was supposed to start, right before I was going to move to Philadelphia to, to start teaching ESL that said there was a problem with the budget and they had resolved my position. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it was awful. Uh, I was actually drawn, uh, I was driving in the car with, with Warren. We were going to Laura Ernst's wedding at that point. We pulled over and it was, it was really not good. <laughs> and why do you think you were rejected from the circus school? Did you send it a video? Is that how the applications were processed? No, no. The Canadian circus schools are kind of a funny animal. I was rejected. The, the reason on paper was because I wasn't a dancer, because I, I didn't really have a dance or, or movement background. But you also, you, you start looking at the politics behind where those schools get their funding. And I have this on good authority from some people, but I don't, I, if you ask me to like produce documents that support this. I, sure. I, this is your theory. Yeah. This is my theory that has been informed by conversations <laughs> with people within the administration. Okay, cool. Let's hear it. Yeah, so like the Quebec City Circus School, they work on a quota system. So since they're in Quebec, they get a certain amount of money from the Quebecois government, and then they also get a certain amount of money from the Canadian government. And one of the strings along with that basically says that they have to accept a certain number of Canadians and a certain number of Quebecois, and then the following spots are filled up with international people, you know, any, any mm -hmm. kind of non-Canadian. A little tighter for international, maybe a higher standard they're looking for. Uh, just a different standard. Right. They're not going to accept a class of 10 jugglers. They, they're going to have a, one or two spots that are open for jugglers. If they are able to fill up all their Quebecois slots with hand-to-hand -hand and acrobats and trapeze artists or something, and then some of the other Canadian students are in other disciplines, and if, if one or two of the, uh, the international slots are still, quote-unquote, open for jugglers, then they'll start looking for an international juggler. So my impression was that I was a strong candidate, but things just didn't shake out in my favor. So you find yourself at this crossroad, this job that you were hoping for is dissolved, and then uh, where does that lead you to next? Yeah, so the job that I was looking at 
the position just got dissolved. I had been rejected from circus schools, and I had a I had a conversation with my friend Jeremy Fine, who's a, a guy from the the juggling club at Wash U. He he was uh, graduating the year after after I did, and he was accepted into NECA's professional track program, uh, New England Center for Circus Arts up in Brattleboro, and he told me that they still had a spot open in that class and that they were looking to fill it with somebody. And so I started sending some emails out to uh, Elsie and Serenity, the, uh, the executive and artistic directors of the school, and also to, uh, to Tony Duncan, the uh, juggling coach, the head juggling mm, coach. Sure, I know Tony. Yeah. One thing led to another. They thought I was a good fit for the program, and I moved to Vermont a couple of weeks after that. And what was that training like? Was that a full-time program? Uh, it's, it's kind of both full-time and half-time. It really is what you make of it. When I was there, I want to say it was three days or four days of coach training per week. But then you also had access to the space to work on work on your assignments or just train on your uh, on your own time and on your own itinerary. And how long of a program is that? Uh, right now, it's just a one year program. I think it's nine months. There's also there's another tier of it as well. There's uh, there's the intensive training program at NECA. So intensive is to sort of get a, a circus ready body and to, to start to focus or decide what you might want to focus on. And then the professional training program, ProTrack, is aimed at really digging in and coming out with two two acts in two different disciplines. Now, and this may say naive, but sure. is this something that you're paying for or how does the like how do you survive during this period of time? Yeah, it's a program that you pay for. You know, it's like going to working on any other certificate kind of program. So NECA is recognized by the state of Vermont as a trade school, you know, which brings great things to their economy. So it's possible to get state funding to attend programs if you're accepted and uh, if you're a resident of the state of Vermont. And then, so when did you start going to IGA festivals? Because I guess that's when I first became aware of you. I guess 2004, I want to say. That was uh, the Davenport, Iowa IGA. And that was my first juggling convention ever. Just mm. completely blew my mind. <laughs> what were some of the things that stood out from your first experience? Um, I want to say that's the year that uh, Grisha Lavinian was there. Who? I'm sorry, I missed that name. Uh, Grisha Levinian. He's a Ukrainian guy that trained with Yuri Posnikov. Maybe um, I wasn't there in Davenport, Iowa. That doesn't sound familiar to me. He was either he was either at that one or at the one in Portland, uh, Oregon. I'm not I'm not totally sure. A very formative memory of me or for me was uh, was watching Grisha do like five ball three up triple pirouette. Totally unbelievable. But yeah, I mean that was the first time that I'd really seen more than one or two jugglers in a place. Growing up, I was I was really lucky. I uh, I guess my juggling childhood. I started really meeting jugglers. I was at the St. Louis Juggling Club, and there are, there are a number of incredible jugglers that were there at the time. Uh, Tony Pezzo was training with Richard Kennison at the club back when when Tony was like five or six years old. Cameron Ritter. I don't know if you remember Cameron or not. I, I know the name. I know, I know Tony better, but uh, I know the name Cameron yeah. Ritter too. Yeah, Cameron competed in juniors a number of times. Just rock solid juggler. I'm trying to think of some of the other names of people that were there. No, it's nice to have a good local club, a good strong local club. Yeah. And so you, so you go out to your first convention and then when did you start competing? Because I, I also remember that you picked up a couple of uh, medals. I especially remember you from the individual prop competitions because that was a, right. an event I used to put on. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I think uh, I won the three ball division of that in 2010 and 2011. Uh-huh. Yeah, that sounds right. It was in, in Sparks and then uh, I guess that would have been Rochester. Yeah, I think Sparks was the first year we had it. It was sort of a an event to sort of try to have apples versus apples kind of judging where you would have a, right. a three ball routine versus other people's three ball routine as opposed to just the stage competitions. It was fraught with, with difficulties, one being that there was too much duplication, I guess, between people just looking at it as a chance to sort of earn another medal or get money and then do the same routine in the other competitions. Right, right, right. But you always remembered to have a very artistic style. You always seemed to have a very sort of dance-oriented style, and you didn't really have a, a dance background. What inspired your, your movement-based style then? Uh, I mean, conversations with Richard Kennison definitely, definitely formed a lot of my perspectives on juggling from, from early on. So was there, a, was there an emphasis to, to cover the stage, to, to add movement? Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure, for sure. Yeah, adding movement, making things interesting. You know, uh, one of the things that Richard always talked about that I definitely agree with is that a juggling act should be interesting without the juggling in it as well. Hmm. So if you were to, to mark through your entire act without any of the props, would you still be interested in any, in any way? Sure, the, the, the basic choreography. And of course, you were speaking yeah. to uh, about a routine to music more so than right. a, a comedy routine. Right, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because if I choreograph my comedy routine, it's basically walk to the center, <laughs> then walk yeah. back to my prop stand, <laughs> back to the, maybe walk over here a little bit, a little over there. But 
that's right. Point to the sound guy. Point yeah, out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good. So yeah, Richard Kinnison, he's a guy I want to have on a future podcast because this idea of of having coaches or what you can learn from a coach and right. from these outside influences. So you were getting some very strong professional influences that influenced your style, which is a nice way to start. Right. So, yeah. okay, so let's take it, so let's, let's sort of pick up the story there. Okay. You, so you've gotten to this IJ, you've, uh, so where do we sort of leave off? We left off basically with you in despair. No, no, actually, <laughs> you, picked, you picked yourself up because then you got a place in, in this, uh, this other circus school. Yeah. And then you did the one-year program. Yeah, that was 2011 to 2012. What were some of the lessons you took away? Anything particular that helped you now injure your professional career? Yeah, I mean, I, I learned a lot of NECA. I mean, whether or not it was a lesson they were directly trying to instill in me. I think one of the best things that any juggler today, speaking from like the artistic, theatrical side of things, is to surround themselves with people that aren't jugglers. <laughs> Yeah, one of the best things there is that I was surrounded by so many aerialists and people that had, you know, had had some level of juggling exposure. So it was more than just a party trick to them. Right. But weren't necessarily familiar with your vocabulary. So a lot of things looked new to them. I think also that when you go in a circus environment, they're all about training, like training the body, right. getting in physical condition. Yeah, yeah. And when you hang around with jugglers, it's more like juggle and then go out for a big dinner and hang out. And it's not really about juggle and hit the gym. Right, 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 right. So having that kind of background, I think, is really important, especially for the jugglers who want to move on in this more artistic direction. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when I was in school at NECA, too, you know, we, uh, we had modern dance classes. There was, uh, there was a guy that used to tour with, uh, with the Martha Graham Company that was there. And so we took classes with him every week. And, uh, you know, there's a huge conditioning element to it. You know, having assignments where you're required, you know, by the end of the week to come away with 30 seconds of, of a piece or a potential piece or two minutes of a number. It's nice to have deadlines. Things get finished when they've got a deadline. Yeah, I'm finding it difficult to, I'm sort of starting a, a side career as a coach. Okay. More, more approach for, for variety and for comedy. And sure. it's just not really something that people have ingrained, this idea of having a coach for their professional juggling careers. When I moved to St. Louis back when I was in high school, I had heard about Richard and being a coach and saw some people that were taking classes with him. I thought that was the, the craziest thing I'd ever heard of, you know, like crazy, you know, what a waste of time, what a waste of money. And then over the course of, of time, you see what the coaching actually does. And it's, it's amazing. You know, it makes me wish that I had, I'd signed up for lessons. <laughs> well, it's also this idea sort of, uh, of mentorship as well, because yeah. there's so many things you learn through the course of a professional career. That you oh, yeah. can impart. I mean, in all these different venues, the first time you, you get on a cruise ship or the first time you do a circus or a circus festival, like sure, you don't yeah. know what to expect. And if you can ask somebody, what was that like? And they can give their firsthand perspective, pretty valuable stuff. So after you finish your training, what's your first engagement after that? The first, the first gig that I had after NECA was at uh, Bush Gardens Williamsburg. I was in a production show there what was it? it was six days a week five shows a day i think it did 500 shows that summer well that will give that will get some seasoning you know that's how yeah. we always talk a lot of jugglers i talk to and there's always some situation where you just have to knock out a ton of shows to get like your right. your stage legs yeah absolutely yeah yeah and i learned i learned a lot an awful awful lot about performance and presentation it's nice to be able to uh have that many of the exact same show back to back to back to back to back on the first show of the day you can think about your breath and the breathing that you do the, the next show you can think about blocking and you know how to cheat your shoulders throughout the show and all these little fine-tuned things that you can't really you can't really have the same experience just gigging you can't you can't really focus on things the same way at least with that that much fine fine tuning and when i watch your, your show you seem to have sort of an old school sensibility and in fact you call yourself tom wall the vaudeville sensation. Right, yeah. Do you find yourself attracted to sort of that style of juggling? Yeah, I, I really am. When I first started juggling and when I first started getting serious about it, I was really interested in, I guess, sort of modern dance and juggling combined, lyrical, lyrical ball juggling. And I had a few experiences that reshaped that attitude, I would say. Mm -hmm. So it, when, I, when I was living in St. Louis, this was right after I'd gotten or I guess maybe a year after it finished at NECA, I had a gig doing a stage show and walk around for, uh, it, was, it was for like this massive scrap metal recycling organization in the Midwest, but it was, it was being held at this huge convention center in downtown St. Louis. 
there were a couple of other performers on the bill as well. And they wanted me to dress up um, in sort of like Wild West apparel. And you walk around before this stage show. And so for the for the first set, I had to do three sets. For the very first set, I uh, thought, oh, I'll, I'll interact with people. I'll, I'll juggle three balls and I'll walk around and I'll show people some tricks and we'll all have a nice time. So I, I have one of the numbers that I perform is just ball juggling with, you know, these are tricks with amazing names and here are the names and it's... It's a nice interactive piece. But these are all sort of these high-end corporate business people, and right. none of them wanted anything to do with, <laughs> with the entertainment. Sure, the joys of walk-around juggling, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. So I was doing all of these super high-level technique whatever tricks, and nobody paid attention to me at all. I was just hanging out in the corner. That's what it kind of turned into. And I was like, okay, well, it's time for my first break. That was kind of a bust. You know, I need to impress the client. What can I do next? Later on that night, I was I was going to perform, I guess, part of an act that eventually turned into my mouth stick number. And I, I had this wine bottle. So I was like, okay, well, I'm dressed like, a, like an old-timey saloon guy. So I'm just going to walk around this area with, with a bottle on top of my head. And we'll just see what happens. <laughs> okay. And so, yeah, so the next... The next one, I'm walking around, I've got this bottle on my head, I'm saying, excuse me, pardon me, and just trying to, you know, walk really slowly and build some tension, give people something to look at. And some people started looking at me and recognizing that I was doing something interesting. And by the time it was time for my next break, I thought, hey, there's there's something there. And so uh, I found some plastic plate and started doing you know, just the uh, the basic, you know, the basic cascade slide off of the elbow with, with some plate. Yeah, you put one on each elbow and let them slide off as the other one is put on and it just sort of repeats over and over again. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so I'd been playing with that at home, and I got these plates. So my next set, I walked out with those. And I started doing all these plate slides and some variations, and people stopped their conversations to watch and look at what I was doing. Okay. And so that was a really big aha moment for me, seeing that sometimes you juggle like clubs or balls or whatever, and after a show, people say, "Oh, that was interesting. Like, what are those? How heavy are those? What are they made out of?" And it's it's a really alien object that people don't have any sort of connection with. And so I think that sort of gives it an othering quality. But when you show up and you have a plate or a bottle or a glass, everybody in your entire audience has held one of those things before, and has probably broken one of those things before too. So there's more of a more of an understanding that you that you start off with right from the get go, and that's sort of the direction that I've I've started going in now. Like one of my goals for 2016 is to have like a full theatrical hour long show that only uses found objects, so that you know an audience could walk into the theater. And my entire stage, every single prop in the show could be set up. They could handle all of the props. They could do everything. They would have no idea it's about to be a juggling show. Yeah, when I coach, I always call that like building inherent interest. That when someone sees you juggling like three balls, it's very easy for them to go, oh, juggling. And basically like, not only do I not care what you're doing, I wish you actually weren't doing that right. while I'm having this conversation with my, co my colleague here at work. Right, I remember right, one right. experience, there was a big sort of a, I think it was the half marathon and it ended in this plaza here in San Francisco. And they were going to have a big party with bands and, and entertainers. And they had a band and I set up kind of in a shady spot because whenever I do walk arounds outdoors, I always scope out the shady spot. I'm that guy who's hiding out in the shady spot. So the <laughs> band's playing, you know, and I got all my different props and I'm, I'm just going, I'm going to get into it and I'm jamming and I'm, I'm doing all these different props and I'm really kind of kicking some butt in my opinion. And then I look up and I realize out of this hill of thousands of people, not a single person is looking my way. Not a single person is watching what I'm doing. Sure, sure. So in my mind, I'm like, oh, I get it. Juggling, it just doesn't really attract people, unfortunately. But like sure. you say, when they see something they can relate to, like what's he going to do with that bottle? What's he going to do with that plate? He can drop that plate. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, approach. And it's also a more theatrical approach. That's your take. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's much easier to put it in a context that people recognize and understand. Well, one thing I like about your career is it seems like you're going in a lot of different directions and sort of working with different partnerships and getting involved with different types of shows. So uh, let's I'm go through some of the highlights that I got from your website that I was interested in sort of talking to you about. And I, this probably won't be in order per se. It might be more of a random approach. Sure. But uh, now I'm about to leave on a cruise ship on Monday. I'm going to be on the Disney line. And now you're on a cruise ship. I'm actually going for four days. You're on for two months. That was two months solid. Yeah. What, what was that gig like? It was good. It was also challenging in a lot of ways. So I was I was on uh, the Celebrity Solstice. I was working on some production shows there. Mm. You're you're about to be a fly-in guest entertainer. You know, just hopping on and off of the ship. 
Yeah, I'm gonna go do like about 60 minutes total of, of like my show. Right, right, right. I'm not sure what the case is with Disney, but did they did they also have like a big theatrical show, like a spectacular on the ship as well? Yeah, they have a they have a big showroom, and then they have these lounges, and then sometimes what they want you to do is like do an adult show, a family show, and then make an appearance near the closing of the opening show at like an extra 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. So if they have like what they call the headliner, uh, they'll have the headliner in the in the big show. And they might even do their own show in the theater, do like a half an hour in what they call the Walt Disney Large Theater. This is only my second engagement for them, so I'm in. I'm still just in the lounge. I got you, yeah. Which yeah. is nice because it's a lot less pressure, but a lot less people see you, and it's sort of obviously not as prestigious perhaps, but uh, I like the lower, lower pressure part and just kind of keeping it casual and having fun shows. So you're doing like a, like a, like a spot, like maybe, what, eight minutes, ten minutes? What's your, what do you have to do in the shows? So the way the celebrity works is that they, uh, on every ship, they've got three large production numbers. So instead of just having a guitar player or a singer or something like that come on, they have, uh, they have a live-on repertory cast of singers, dancers, and specialty acts. So on the solstice at this point in time, they had, uh, they had this big Broadway number where they had you know, all these singers and dancers that were just belting out show tunes. It was pretty incredible. It's an hour-long show. So they had... They had the Broadway number. They had this uh, rock and roll review show where all the musicians really got to show off. And then they also had this, this circus-style show, the, sort of a Cirque Nouveau, Cirque du Soleil in the 1980s kind of kind of feel. And so in the, the Broadway show, I just kind of moved a couple of boxes around, basically a stagehand that was just dressed up like a Broadway singer guy. <laughs> right, right. You were actually atmosphere with the purpose of moving some boxes around. Yeah, exactly. In the uh, in the rock and roll show, I was uh, I was a physical comedian was the official title. So I did all of the transitions in between all of the shows, and I also did the pre show number as well. So uh, I was sort of like the through line character clown guy. Okay, that sounds like a good experience. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was great. And that was all nonverbal. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And then in the uh, in the third show, the Cirque du Soleil show or Cirque du Soleil style show, I will say, the Cirque Nouveau number, I performed a ball juggling act as well as a uh, mouth stick glass balancing act. Um, that's the one that I really got to show off. You know, some of my training or pedigree or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And that's the one where you have the mouth stick and then you sort of build this pyramid of glasses. It's all balanced in a, a ball. Is that correct? I, I use uh, like a dagger in between my teeth, uh, okay. a knife. So I balance I balance wine glasses on the sharp of the knife on nice. my teeth, um, and also you know some other tricks for like uh, skipping rope with a glass balanced on a knife, doing the, the classic point to point trick where you have like a military saber and you balance that point to point on the dagger and teeth, and then finish with the uh, the balloon and chandelier trick where you balance the candelabra on top of a balloon and you pop the balloon. Yeah, that's a nice variation on that trick that I see that you're using. The now it's funny because I, I saw another gentleman on on uh, Facebook. He basically did the same exact trick. And had then posted it. And I thought, I wonder what Tom thinks about that. What do you think about, like, when you, like, obviously the trick itself, the, the, the balloon bursting and the, the object dropping onto the mouse stick, is kind of like the, the template anybody can look at and sort of. Right. But you came up with sort of a unique variation on it. So where do you think that sort of lies on the sort of creativity scale? If someone were just to. Can someone just use that now, or, or do you feel like you have ownership of that variation of it? I don't know. I think a lot of it's pretty open source. And a lot of the material that I'm presenting now, is, it's really more like character-driven, mm-hmm. anyhow, too. So, I mean, sure. anyone can learn how to juggle seven balls, but can you learn how to juggle seven balls in an inter- interesting way? Right. The the knife and mouth trick, knife, knife, balloon, chandelier thing, is it's pretty, but I can't stop other people from learning it. So. Right. All you can focus on is your own personal character and your own delivery. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. So, okay, yeah. so you're on this show, and you're we're with a pretty big cast. So, did you like the cruise ship experience? Is that something you plan to do more of in the future? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely like to do more of it in the future. I think it would be easier if I were working on it as a, with a juggling partner, or if my girlfriend came along, or something like that. Yeah, perhaps do your own show, like one of these jugglers who has sort of the, their own night, right, in the theater or, or in the lounge. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely a long term goal. I I have my own hour long show, but. And trying to reshape it into something that has like this logic that builds throughout it instead of being like a one-man variety show. And I see you work with lots of different partners. One show that uh, I've seen part of is The Hopeless Thromantics yeah. with Kurt Carlisle. What do you look for a partner and what, what interests you about working with these different people? Yeah, so I, I guess I've got two of these, these two-person juggling shows. One is Hopeless Thromantics with Kurt. 
And then I also have another show called uh, The Dinner and a Show Show with my friend Benjamin Domat. And yeah, I mean, I, I think working, like picking them, I don't, I don't know that I'd say that I pick them as my partners. I mean, do you think, do you find it logistically difficult? I mean, for me, like having a partner and then trying to do solo work and then trying to commit to one situation without impacting the other situation. Sure. Do, you, do you find that difficult logistically or how does, how does that work out with the different partners? Yeah. So, I mean, for, for both of those shows, Benjamin and I put the dinner and a show show up uh, at fringe festivals across the country. And we'll, we'll look at our calendars. We'll compare our cal calendars several months in advance and see what we want to apply to. And then when and if we're accepted, it's a lottery or a jury or however the, the fringe works. We'll figure out when we want to train, when we want to rehearse it. And we'll just make sure that we're able to attend it then. Right. Yeah, and then Kurt and I, we, we Skype a lot. We write new material a lot, just sort of at a distance. And that's one of the nice things about, I guess, talking, comedy juggling. The, the project with Benjamin is, is more of a theatrical show. And then working with, with Kurt is more like verbal vaudeville, wink and nudge kind of, kind of performance. So you can really write the jokes, a lot of the jokes, just on Skype. Right, so the rehearsal period, you don't have as much in time togetherness as, as you would with the, the dinner and show show. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, exactly. And we, we perform a couple of shows every year. You know, like we uh, we do a lot of stuff with the IJ, like we posted some IJ shows and that kind of thing. Now, one routine you guys do that I've seen is like you sit in a wheelchair or, or maybe Kurt does. Yeah. And then uh, one of you is on the, the, the handles of the wheelchair and then it's tilted back. And then are you both juggling knives? So Kurt had both the, I guess, the fortune and misfortune of breaking his ankle when he was, uh, I think he was in high school. And uh, he got really good at doing wheelies in wheelchairs. So he, he, could, he can go like down, and, down a football field in a, wheel, in a wheelie if you wanted to. Right. So the trick there is uh, I stand on the handlebars of that and I juggle these, these battle axes while he pops us into a wheelie. And we promenade in a big circle around the stage. That's the finale for our show. And did you get any flack for that? Because I remember there was uh, some discussion about whether that using the wheelchair was, was disparaging of people with disabilities. I remember something like that. Maybe that was just a couple... Two people who are a little bit too politically correct. Yeah, I think some people on Facebook decided they wanted to post about about that. Personally, I don't really, I mean, I, I can see where their frustration might come from, but I don't necessarily see it as a problem. Again, going back to the idea of found objects and things that people have experienced with, everybody in a, in a theater will have seen and maybe pushed a wheelchair before. So it really just goes back to the idea of making things relatable. So it's not like we're making fun of handicapped people while we do it, you know? Right, right. It's not like, yeah, it's not like that's part of the yeah. comedy. It just seemed once again that, that it was an image that people were, that there was sort of some controversy they were looking at as, is this right for some reason? Well, right. it's a choice and it might not be the choice you would have made, but it's certainly something that they should be able to do and yeah. uh, that the majority of people will not even have that thought at all. Right, right, right. So it's at what point does the minority in this, obviously if you're doing a show like a cruise ship or uh, right. like, I'm sure like the show you did with the Rockettes, there is this idea like if we offend one person, like on Disney, if you're a show offends one person, that's one person too many. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, so it's talking about the Rockettes, or I know I brought it up, but sure. that was another experience you had recently where you were actually at Radio City Music Hall. Yeah, yeah. And so how did that come about, and what did you do with the Rockettes? Yeah, so the Rockettes put on a Christmas Spectacular every year, which is like the big thing they've been doing for, I don't know how long, several, several decades. And they decided they wanted to start producing a Spring Spectacular as well. And this is a show that has been, it was, I don't know how long, maybe three or four years in the making and something like $18 million, some just absurd amount of money going into it. And at the last minute, they decided they wanted to have a uh, sort of a circus component. My theory is that the, uh, the producers saw, you know, how successful Pippin was. Right. And they wanted to sort of like ride that idea of, you know, circus being popular and adds a little bit of little panache, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and Pippin's the Broadway show where they sort of brought in a lot of circus performers. Right. And made it more of a, a circus production when initially it was just a, a pretty straightforward musical. Yeah, exactly. And they, they won all kinds of awards and it's been on this huge national tour. Right, so let's bring in the jugglers. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and so, so the producers of the Spring Spectacular put out this casting call online. And I guess they were also doing some searching on their own, too. They, they came across a video of mine, 20, they call it 28 Tricks for a 28-Year-Old. Okay. Yeah, and they, they saw that I, I had a pretty high technical standard and that I also do a lot of tricks with sort of non-standard juggling objects. And they called me up and asked me if I wanted to move to New York the next day. And I said yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's good to know that you can actually put things on video. So if the juggler is listening, you know, here's a video you just put up just as... You know, not necessarily with that, that end in mind. 
Right. But by putting something out in the world, someone saw it and said, yeah, this guy would be good for this very big production with the Rockettes at Radio City Music. Calls you up next day, moving to New York. Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend moving to New York on a day's notice. But, <laughs> but you have some, I'm sure you have some friends out there, some support system, a lot of jugglers in New York. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And how long was that engagement for? Uh, I think we did 72 shows over the course of uh, two months. And that was sort of the same thing you did on the ship where you were sort of an atmosphere doing different skits in, in different production numbers? Yeah, so it's the Spring Spectacular was, I think it was 80 minutes long. Like really just unbelievable the amount of production value that thing has. You know, like you're talking about giant LED screens are like the size of a city block that descend from the ceiling and uh, a mock-up of the Empire State Building that gets flown in from the ceiling. Just I mean, it's unbelievable. So they had me in one of the very first scenes in this Grand Central Station scene. The song talks about, you know, the sights and sounds and the smells of New York, and they mentioned bagels. And so I, I juggled bagels all the way across the, the stage and up a, set of, up a flight of stairs. And were those special Dubai juggling bagels? or? <laughs> well, the first, I think the first 10 shows, they were just stale old Einstein bagels because the props team hadn't had a chance to, to look at that one particular tiny detail just yet. Right. Um, but I worked with them. I worked with them to, uh, to create what I, what I envisioned to be the perfect juggling bagel, which was, was like, a, if you imagine like a softball-sized bean bag. Sure, yeah, yeah. Filled with, you know, like heavy beans and then just sort of with a dart in the middle of it. So it sort of has a, a bagel look and shape, but it still conforms to your hand a little bit like a ball. And then it was airbrushed in a way that sort of gave it a two-dimensionality. So now when you do these shows where, like, obviously you have sort of a creative outlet with your theater shows and with these different partners. So when you do a show where you're basically sort of playing just a, a part, are you doing sort of basically the same thing night after night? Yeah. Do you find this is sort of like two parts of the same brain thing? Is it like sort of a different identity? Or how do you sort of compartmentalize these two different approaches to what you do with your career? I guess when we're talking about entertainment, the client always comes first. Right? Sure. There's sort of a game that you get to play when you do the exact same show again and again and again to see how perfect you can make it for this, for the audience, for your client, for, right. uh, for whoever. So that's that's one sort of obsessive game that you get to play. And I mean, you, you absolutely get to do the same thing when it's your own production and you get to focus on creative choices, but even then you have to make sure everything is replicable. So I, I think it really is kind of the same approach to two different things that make sense. Well, I think like you said, like it's a job. What does the client want? If the client wants me to, like I did a thing where I was uh, on the Jay Leno show for one of these meal or no meal sure. segments where you're in the audience and you have some skill and then they judge you whether you earn a meal or not. Right. And some people thought like that was sort of a come down for me. Like, oh, I'd already done a spot, obviously, years ago with the Raspini Brothers on The Tonight Show. Sure, sure. And now I'm in the audience pretending I'm not even a juggler. Right. And to me, it was sort of like, well, I'm an actor. That was the role that that sort of job required. They want you to pretend you weren't a juggler. And I'm like, well, that's certainly, I'm a, an entertainer. I'm a performer. If you want me to juggle bagels and you want me to juggle bagels for 10 throws every show or for cross from here to there while I'm juggling... Right. I, I would do it too. I mean, that's certainly uh, a very sort of respectful way to approach the business. Like, what do they want me to do? And how can I use my skill set to sort of do it the best way possible? Right, 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 right. Because another big company you worked with was Cirque du Soleil. You actually filled in or, or replaced Greg Kennedy. Is that right? In, in the cone. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I toured with Cirque du Soleil. I guess the run was from Portland, Oregon to Vancouver, BC to uh, to Auckland, New Zealand. And that was that was last season, 2014. The contract spanned. I want to say it was about nine months. Kind of a kind of a break in the middle where we put dinner and a show show up. <laughs> I mean, we so you were on contract the whole time, but you had a long break where you had to do your own thing. Yeah, exactly. When the show was transferring from Vancouver, BC down to Auckland, uh, they put it on a container ship, so it, it took a little while. Right, but you're still like on a retainer. They still have some some hold on you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. And what, yeah. so what was it like to be inside the cone? Is, is that So for the people who don't know, there's this, this uh, juggler, Greg Kennedy, a very clever, innovative juggler, and he stands inside a large plexiglass cone and then rolls balls around him while he stands in the center. So it's sort of like one of these sort of architectural juggling routines. Right, yeah, exactly. So that was, uh, that was a pretty intense process. Greg had a, uh, I guess... Greg had and still has a replacement who had to go off on medical leave from super short notice. Right. And I had, I had met Greg at an audition for his, for his, I guess the show that's touring now is Theorem Show. And we had met and he 
saw me and liked me and I guess saw that I, I juggled at whatever standard would be would be fitting for the cone. And I was flown to Portland, Oregon for an intensive one-on-one four-day audition with the artistic team there. And sort of the, the name of the game was, if Tom can learn how to juggle seven balls in the cone within four days, then yeah, we think he'll be able to learn the entire act to have it at, a, I guess, a performable standard when Greg leaves to, to go back to his family. What was the time frame and how much time did you have to learn the whole act? I went from zero to stage ready in a little less than two months. Wow. That's, that's pretty intense. Because that's not, that's not like stage ready in a small venue. That's stage ready, basically center ring, Cirque du Soleil stage ready. Right. Exactly. 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 And did you do the other bits in the show as well? Did you do his other, like the bowls yeah. and the... Yeah, I did bowls, boxes, uh, you know, all of his cues throughout the show as well. Yeah. Right. So you played his entire role of the, of the old man, of this inventor character. Exactly. Yeah. The scientist. 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 In the show totem yeah and it was it was definitely pretty intense you know i've i've had to learn other people's tracks and shows before i mean just talking about the, the the cruise ship show you know it's a production show for this one where i was the the narrative through line throughout this whole thing i i was told you have to start here end here the past couple of guys have done this gag this gag this gag if you want to follow that great if you want to write your own stuff great but this is sort of the the structure of how it has to be Right, the timing, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The structure, the timing, all this. These are all the parameters that you're working with. But learning Greg's routine in Cirque, I was learning his acts throw for throw, exactly the same to the exact same music. And what would you do like per day? Would you do four, I mean, how much could you do before you're like, okay, this is as much cone time as I can take? Yeah, I think it varied between one to like four hours maybe per day. Did you feel stage ready when, when the time came? Yeah, 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 I did. I think my, my first like four or five shows were totally perfect, no drops, no nothing. It helps when you don't have to invent the technique or invent the the patterns that you're doing. You're sure. really just, you have to learn, you're just becoming a carbon copy of what has already been created. And how was your experience overall? Was that something you looked at and said, wow, I'd love to work with them again? Or did you feel there was certain aspects you're like, well, that was good and I'm not really gonna try to recreate that or pursue that again? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely a, a multifaceted answer that you're looking for. Um, <laughs> The on-the-ground logistics of working for the company was really, really great. I mean, Circus Soleil is a company that really cares about its performers. They really care about the, I guess, the product that they're offering the public. You know, they, they've got awesome on-site catering. They have physical therapists that are there. They have massage therapists that come in, do Pilates classes. They really want to make sure that you are the strongest and most able to do your job as you possibly can be. They, they're really looking to set all of their artists up for success for every single show that you do in terms of doing you know, like 13 show weeks again then again then again then again the stress knowing that people go to a Cirque du Soleil show expecting perfection right and that definitely is a stressful working environment I'd say well it's tough to be on your game every show I mean you might go oh my shoulder hurts this show or totally, didn't, yeah. didn't sleep so good or we, we you know we had a big trip and we had to move a lot of stuff or whatever it is it's hard to right. always be game ready right yeah yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that, that's definitely a, a challenge, but uh, it, was, it was a fulfilling one, a gratifying one to, uh, to live up to. It gives you also about admiration for like what Gatto does. I mean, to, to be centering and be doing such a oh my gosh, yeah. complex, I'm mean, not to say that the, the juggling in the, in, the cue, in, the, in the pyramid or the, the cone is not difficult, but I think there's probably some give to it since it's not toss juggling per se. Absolutely, yeah. yeah so, yeah. you know, to be doing seven clubs in that same environment, you can imagine going like, wow. It's, yeah, it's yeah. a whole nother deal. Yeah, you got to be able to do it getting slapped awake at three in the morning. <laughs> what you guys have experienced also like sort of the Cirque, circus festival kind of pressure because you had a recent thing, I think it was even this year, where you, where, where'd you go to Latvia for a festival? Yeah, I, I competed at the, the Riga International Circus Festival in Latvia, in Riga, Latvia. How do you find all these cool different things to do? I mean, do you just research or do they find you? How, how did that come about? Uh, it's it's kind of a combination of things. Like you have you have to apply to most circus festivals to be a part of them. And I had applied to Riga. There's an aerialist at NECA that had been to the, the Riga festival before. Had an interesting experience there. So I figured I would like to. I wanted to see what was going on, and there wasn't an application fee or anything. So I applied, and I got an email. I think about three weeks before the festival, saying that I was accepted. And I found a plane ticket for like round trip from from JFK to to Riga for like four hundred and fifty dollars. So I figured, you know. <laughs> This, this looks like an interesting life experience, and I'm, I'm happy to put the bill. <laughs> well, it just also shows you, once again, like people aren't necessarily looking for you. If you go out there, you want to do something, and, and if you're willing to sort of cough up some money, then everything is based on what the gig pays. 
Right. Sometimes you have to roll the dice and say, what's this experience and what can it lead me to? And you did quite well and you won a, you won a couple of prizes. Yeah, I won a, it was a special prize. It was sort of a, the way they worded it was, was it was the people's choice special prize for the acts that brought the most pleasure to Latvian people or something like that. <laughs> and it was also best hair, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I get that one a lot though. Well, you know, you do have a, a wonderful head of hair. And then also, uh, so another gig that also, once again, I look, I thought, wow, that's one I'd like to do was you, you were in China, which is a place I've yet to get to. So what was your experience like in China? And we'll kind of, we're getting towards the end. So we'll, then we'll do a little wrap up after this one, future yeah. thoughts type of thing for Tom. But what was China like? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the China scene was kind of weird. I was, uh, I was doing shows at a shopping mall in, in downtown Hong Kong. And yeah, it was, it was a Snoopy themed shopping mall. So I, I had like this this legion of uh, these like four foot tall Snoopy statues. There were like seventy of them in front of the stage, just everywhere. And I had this little this little stage, and I was doing three twenty minute shows per day, three thirty minute shows per day for about a week over the Christmas season. And that's that's a really common thing that happens in Hong Kong. Actually, is that they have these you know, they have all these shopping malls, and every single shopping mall. I mean, look at look in America. You know, every single shopping mall has the exact same story. So there's a Victoria's Secret. There's a Gap. There's this. There's that. Right. There's the other. The one thing that the shopping malls need to do in order to get people to buy from their Victoria's Secret or their Gap or their sure. whatever is to have different entertainment. So there's sort of this arms race in all of these different malls in, in Hong Kong and Shanghai and Beijing where they try and have the best or most interesting show possible. So I was, I was at a uh, shopping mall called APM doing shows there. I was the only entertainer in that mall. It was like Mall of America size. It was unbelievable. It was bigger than bigger than the town in Vermont where I live. And, uh, and at other other shopping malls, like I, I heard that in like Shanghai, they had like an entire circus company doing a full production show like two or three times a day. So it's crazy. There's this really bizarre market. <laughs> and and you, did you feel sort of isolated and alone, and or were you able to hang out with other performers? Like if you're the only performer there, like during the day, did you just feel kind of like I'm I'm in an alien culture surrounded by people I can't talk to? That's what that's what sort of worries me. Yeah, that's I would say that is an accurate statement. Yeah. <laughs> well, like I say, once again, people if they if yeah. they're considering becoming professional jugglers, and I look at you as someone who's really had a great start. Like I feel you've been working the last few years in some really nice quality productions. Right, right. And right. you're about to embark upon this sort of life of being a professional juggler. But when people look at it, if they look at it with sort of stars in their eyes, like, oh, I want to go to China and do a show. You don't realize that you might be in one place in a shopping mall and the shows might be like, oh, you're doing 12 o'clock, 4 o'clock and 7 o'clock. Right. And you don't have enough time to get out or you don't have enough wherewithal to get out. And your whole trip to China is basically sitting in a shopping mall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's... And I want to do that. <laughs> There's a lot of alone time. There's a lot of uh, downtime. You know, you, you'll read a lot of books. I'm really fortunate that my like early academic career was was focused on foreign languages. Like in Latvia, most people speak German there. Right. So I was able to speak German to, to all these people that my understanding when I first got there was they spoke Latvian and Russian. But due to a, a series of unfortunate events in the 1940s, a lot of them learned German. And, and how's your Chinese? Is your Chinese okay? No, it's non-existent. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't languages where I can sort of read the language. Sure, sure, I have sure. pretty good luck with French or Spanish. But when you get sure. to Russian or Chinese, I'm like, I that's it. I'm I'm here for sure. And speaking of books, like we both love to read, but you had another gig where you were sort of a playing a famous juggler in history. It was a a show for American authors. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There was uh there was the it's called the Gilded Stage Festival, which is a small theater festival that's put on in New York City. And yeah, and some friends and I, some friends that I met at the Celebration Barn Theater in South Paris, Maine, we put on or we, we wrote this uh, this show. And the life of me, it was a really long title. I can't remember exactly what the title was, but it was. Did you play Cincavelli or who'd you play? Yeah, I called Paul Cincavelli. Yeah, yeah, nice. yeah. And the show is sort of this weird mashup of uh, the author of The Wizard of Oz and Paul Cincavelli and, uh, and the, the story of. Oh, Emily, it wasn't Emily Dickinson. It was, it was this famous abolitionist suffragette and sort of finding ways in which their, their stories sort of intersected. And it was, I think it was, it was a really interesting production. It was, it was the first time that I've really sat down and tried to help create something beautiful, something lyrical that wasn't just whiz-bang spectacle of juggling. Definitely a very thoughtful show with a message. I like to do something um, like that. I'm, I'm basically in the whiz-bang juggling school, I think. 
Yeah, sure, sure, sure. And there's, I mean, there's no shame in that. Uh, that's where uh, where the magic is made, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, that's where the 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 most jobs are. The sort of the the bread totally. and butter. Totally, yeah, yeah. Bring out, bring the entertaining juggler out, and that's what you do. I love this uh, sort of artistic stuff that I see. I know, like Jay Gilligan just put out a whole bunch of stuff with the using those those Newton cradles, the you know the balls that swing back and forth, and of course the work that Tony Pezzo and and other other those uh, creative guys are doing. Where do you see yourself going in the future? If we can wrap this up with sort of a, where do you see yourself going, and what do you, what do you want to sort of accomplish in your career, Tom? Right. Yeah, that's that's an excellent question, but. <laughs> I think I need to reflect on that for a little while. Well, like, like before in your career, it seems like sometimes you just put stuff out there and see where it takes you. But do you have a, a plan? Yeah. Right now, I'm, I'm in the process of, of building I'm building a new show, a new solo piece. The tentative the tentative title is Prince of Waiters. And it's it's all this sound object, gentleman juggler style stuff. So a lot of like wine bottles, a lot of wine glasses, a lot of you know, champagne bucket, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, plates and everyday found objects. And the end goal is to have that into some kind of a like a black box theater production show. Or, you know, one man. I guess mm-hmm. production show isn't the right word, but it's like a one man traveling show. Would that be also for the fringes, or is that more performing arts, or where do you see that going? I, I could see that going both directions. I'm honest. I'm, I'm still so so much in the beginning phases of it. I'm not totally sure what this animal will turn into, but that's that's that project. And ideally. I'll be able to turn some of that into something that I take to trade shows as well. You know, working with sort of like like food and beverage conventions and that. And that well, there also is the the wacky waiters. I mean, I've seen guys who go out to corporate events. Right, right, right. And that's something you can pitch to corporates is the idea of the the waiter, and then you interact, and then sometimes you get up on stage and do plate spinning or something that sort of fits within that right, right, right. That mold. So. Yeah, I love that kind of stuff too. That found objects, especially with plates and and totally, yeah. bottles. It's that's up my alley as well. Yeah, yeah, and also uh, I guess for 2016 and beyond, I've been this past month. I've been at the Celebration Barn Theater working on a on a show with Fritz Groba. You know mm-hmm. Fritz? I do know Fritz. I haven't seen him for quite a long time, but I definitely know him from back in his uh, IGA days. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so he directed this new ensemble show out of the Celebration Barn with with five performers. It was it was me, uh, another juggler, an actress, and a, and a physical comedian clown. And yeah. So we we produced a show called Traveling Light, which is I mean it's a really beautiful exploration of death and dying. It, it has some circus and variety components to it. You know, it definitely has some light moments as well. And I believe our plan is to revamp it next year and then see where that takes us. That's another long-term project that I've got in the works as well. Well, I'm sure whatever the future brings, it's going to be exciting. And it's going to be exciting to watch and see how your career blossoms and where it goes to. And uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing some of your experiences. And I look forward to watching your adventures as they unfold. <laughs> thanks so much, Dan. Thanks again it. to the vaudeville sensation, Tom Wall. Thanks, Tom. Right, thanks, Dan. I hope you enjoyed podcast number 24 with the great, the talented... The best hair in the business, the vaudeville sensation, Tom Wall. Once again, let's thank our sponsors, the International Jugglers Association at juggle.org and my personal coaching website at braindrizzles.com. Let's also thank our engineer, the lovely and talented Karen Holzman. Until next time, drop everything except when you're juggling.